whatever the case may be. And boy, we get to uh, get our God. Did I not turn on mine? I'm so sorry, Dave. I didn't turn it on. I just did since you turned this one on. And now there's power in the mic. Amen. All right, fantastic. But I'm, I'm grateful for that. I am very thankful uh, that you and I are near every day that passes. We're near to be in the very presence of God, so I'm grateful for that. We said in culmination, when heaven is seemingly silent, faith does what? For the just live by faith, the reality is faith keeps looking upward, and so it is. Well, Habakkuk received that answer for God, and we just got into this last week very briefly. As he got his answer, it kind of revealed something. It revealed the reality that two of the clearest and most obvious signs that we are failing at living and walking by faith are this. First, we complain and whine. We, we get all worked up when God doesn't answer, number one. And then secondly, when he does answer, we complain and whine about the answer. And boy, that is truly a good indicator that, okay, no, wait a minute, I'm not really living by faith. I beg and cry, and oh God, why haven't you answered? Why haven't you done this? And I'm not trusting by faith that God's timing's perfect. But when I do get the answer, then finally, uh, then I complain about what the answer is. Is God's way not best? Is he not sovereign? Is he not the, and, and we'll see this come to play tonight. I think it's amazing. Habakkuk kind of answers his own questions in some ways that he uh, postulates before God and uh, what he this says there. So that's really the point that Habakkuk is at this right now in the book. Okay, look at verse number five. You remember we read this last time. Here's then God's response. Behold ye among the heathen in regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Okay, and so then we move from the silence of God to what we call the statement of God or the perplexity of the prophet to the plan of the prophet's God. It's an ominous opening statement here. It's really an assurance that God knows what's going on in Habakkuk. I, I'm well aware. I'm working behind the scenes, as he does so well so often, beyond Habakkuk's sight and knowledge. And he's about to unleash something that's going to make Habakkuk astonished. He says, something you won't believe. We saw, first of all, that the tool of God's judgment, as he says in verse number 6, are going to be the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And Habakkuk desired revival among the Jews, but the fact was God was going to bring retribution, judgment, punishment for their sin via a very unlikely tool, this wicked nation. Number two, we saw the terror of that tool of judgment. We won't rehearse it all, but to suffice it to say that God says they are a bitter, hasty nation. They're terrible, they're dreadful. Verses 6 through 11. We went through all those descriptions. We won't uh, go back over them, but he shares with Habakkuk the terror of it. Then uh, the totality, number three, the totality of the judgment scope. Israel is going to lose its greatest earthly possession, the promised land. Many will be killed. Many will be carried away captive. And uh, you can imagine Habakkuk getting this how whatever means it was that Habakkuk got this uh, response from God and he's just, he's flabbergasted. He can't believe it. This is not what he was expecting. It's not what he desired. And we made this statement last time and where we finished was this statement and I think it's crucial. Settled faith tells us God's answer is the best answer even though our hearts might think otherwise. <sighs> Even though our feelings tell us otherwise, even though our sight tells us otherwise, we think, well, this is the answer. God's answer is always best. That's, that's settled and established faith. That's, that's the just living by faith, my settled faith that God's answer is best. And so that's all said and done. We come to here and we come now to these next few verses in Habakkuk. Man, 
you can just see he's worked up. Man, he, he, is, he is at this place where, God, I just don't understand it. Why would you do this? And he really now responds to God. We have entitled it this way in uh, these verses here, verses um, uh, 12 and following. He, he begins, we'll get to verse 12. I don't want to read it quite yet, but it, he, he goes, art thou not? And then he's he, like, whoa, 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 wait, God, you're going to do that? Wait a minute, what about all these things? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But we call this <laughs> the thorough perplexity of the prophet. Uh, we've seen the tool, the terror, uh, the totality of the scope of the judgment. And now you have the thorough perplexity. Habakkuk doesn't know what to think. Habakkuk is just so frustrated because it isn't the answer that he wanted. And boy, he's like, wait a minute. This doesn't match up. This doesn't meet up in what I think about God. And what I like about this, and don't miss it. I told you before, I think Habakkuk is a godly follower, believer of God, Jehovah. And yet he's real. He's honest. These are the struggles going on in his heart and mind. And God in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom allowed Habakkuk to record for you and I what's going on in his mind. And have you ever been someplace or maybe here at church and you often wonder, boy, I'd be scared for people to know all my thoughts. I'd be scared. I wouldn't want people to know all the struggles and the things that I wrestle with. Maybe even when it comes to what God is doing, how He's handling the situation, and and boy, we we often Habakkuk is laying it out for you and I. Something that you and I can empathize with. Something that you and I say, "Wow, I've struggled with like this situation in my life, and this thing that God did. I I don't quite understand it. Why does He allow that?" And uh, what Habakkuk is working through and dealing with in his own life, it, it is something that you and I certainly face at times in our lives too. And so it's really laid out for us. When our prayers are not answered the way we want, maybe health, maybe whatever, working the heart of another person, you, you name it, when our prayers are not answered, when life seems unfair, God couldn't have or- orchestrated it any better. In our letters there, in our prayer bulletin, we have a letter from uh, one of our missionaries, Tigran Agamalian. And uh, he, he writes in this letter, and I love it, second paragraph, I think it is. And he talks about how, and he was excited about teaching a class, the students and everything else. And, and uh, he's supposed to be there, I think, for five days. And he gets to teach for two days. And guess what? He gets diagnosed with the virus. And uh, he gets kind of sick and so forth. So he can't teach the rest of the week. The worst part, I think, he was supposed to fly back to the States at the end of the week for his son John, I believe it is, his graduation. He completely missed that. And at the end of the paragraph, I love what Brother Tigran writes. He goes, God's been helping me to learn to rely on him when life isn't fair. Have you ever been there? Life's not fair. Why does this happen to me? Why did this go on? Why, why, why did this occur? God, why are you allowing this? Why are the wicked prospering? Why? Life is unfair. And, man, I appreciate that honesty by one of our missionaries. Could you imagine how disappointing that is, not seeing your son for a while, wanting to go to the, the graduation to fly over there, and because now all of a sudden you got the virus, and what are you doing? You're serving God. You're teaching. And, and life kind of seems unfair. And I like what... Brother Tigran says, God's teaching me and helping me to rely on him. And I, I would throw in there, he's teaching him to help him walk by faith. In spite of situations and difficulties and challenges of life, walking by faith. See, I, I just encourage you tonight, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong after the service, feel free. But I truly believe godly people still wrestle which with such things at different times. 
Lord, this doesn't seem fair. Father, man, I just, I'm serving you. I'm doing this. And that just doesn't seem fair. I think from Elijah and many other people in the scriptures, you, you got to get a feel at times of just a wrestling with, man, it just, oh, as Habakkuk does here. And he expresses it. It's quite interesting. You look at verse 12 now. He gets the answer from God, and he says this. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Okay, there's actually only one there, but it helps. He goes, why? What? This is not, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Wait a second, God. Hang on a second. You're telling me. You're telling me that God is going to use that wicked, God, you are going to use that wicked nation? Now I told you, let's back up a moment, kind of take verse number 12 by itself. I told you at the beginning of the introduction to this book that I believe Habakkuk in this small book is one of the best theologians in the Old Testament. I think he hits on doctrines that are pretty amazing that you think an Old Testament prophet that doesn't have much of the scriptures as we do uh, or, or the full capacity of it, he presents the doctrine of God in a wonderful way. And I'll tell you, I, I believe that this verse shows that he is a knowledgeable theologian like, like no other. Look at the perceived character of God that Habakkuk describes in verse 12. First of all, he says what? God is everlasting. God, you are eternal. And I love the, the contrast. He says, wait a minute, that sets you apart from verse 11. Nebuchadnezzar and all his fellow rulers of the Chaldeans, they're going to praise their gods who are nothing, not eternal, not everlasting, but thou art everlasting. You are eternal. He establishes that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that he is eternal and everlasting. He is like no other in that sense. He also describes God as what? The Holy One. You alone art holy. You look at Dagon, you look at Baal, you look at some of these other false gods, and it's kind of interesting, not only from biblical historical fact, but also maybe from some uh, ancillary or extra, extra biblical historical things, you will find that these people viewed their gods as very vindictive. The gods were temperamental. You certainly look at the Greek gods and even the, the gods of Egypt and so forth. These are gods that are more like you and I, humanly speaking. They get mad. They get angry. They take vengeance. And, and uh, you've got to keep them happy and so forth. Almost childish many of these gods are. But what Habakkuk realizes about Jehovah, the God of heaven, that, that he alone is perfect, that he is the holy one. He is, not, he is free of sin. He is not able or liable to, to, to hold back the rain out of vengeance and anger. Some of them believed about their gods. Uh, not just uh, mean and vindictive. No, no, he's the holy one. He is the very essence of holiness. He is free of sin and corruption. He is the very definition and embodiment of purity. Verse 13 expounds upon that truth, doesn't it? Because listen, he says, hey, God, you can't even look upon evil and corruption and iniquity and wickedness. You are purer of eyes than to behold evil. God, this is not your character. And that is the resounding theme that we see here. He goes on, he also points out the reality of God's sovereignty. 
He says, you are the one that alone ordains what happens. You make some things happen, cause them to happen. Other things, you permit them to occur. Everyone and everything alone are in your hands, under your control. I like what he says in the last of the verse. He says, you establish what will happen to whom. Nothing happens without it crossing your desk, God. You are sovereign. And he doesn't stop there. He uses the term almighty God. It's actually a Hebrew word in terminology that literally means O rock. Much as the psalmist would describe our God as a rock, a shelter, a refuge. When he writes O mighty one, he's alluding to the fact that our God is a refuge and a rock, uh, all powerful refuge and rock, uh, that those who put their faith in can run to. He's a rock. You take this verse here, and in this one verse is a treasure trove of doctrinal truth about the very character of God. Now, it's quite interesting. You find this verse 12, and I love this about Habakkuk. He, he, he loves his God. He, he, as we talked about, he's, he embraces his God. He, he understands who his God is. He knows the character of God. It's explained in verse 12. He just lays it out wonderfully. But he inserts that as he comes to God to question him, as he questions the doings of God, the workings of God. Now, wait a minute, God. You are all these things. This is the very essence of your character. This is who you are. And then he questions God about what he's doing. We put it this way. Do you understand what he's doing? He's appealing to the character of God. God, did you forget you're holy? You can't look upon the, the sinful, wicked people. God, God, did you forget that you are everlasting and eternal? Did you forget that you're sovereign? That you ordained them? It's almost like he's appealing. Hey, don't you know your own character? You might say. Here's the problem. Habakkuk is looking at this situation from a human perspective. In doing so, he's saying that this is what you just said you're going to do is incompatible with what I know you to be in your character. It brings up three things that the next few verses that he says, and he's struggling with in his own life and, and so forth. The first one is this. The foretold judgment is incompatible with Habakkuk's limited perception of God's character. Now, don't miss this. I want you to hear what we have to say, what I believe the Bible spells out for us here that Habakkuk did, because I believe you and I fall into the same trap spiritually sometimes. Okay? So the foretold judgment is in Habakkuk's mind incompatible with his limited understanding and perception of the very character of God. He's asking, God, how can you even think about using such a nation as the Babylonians? Now, did you catch what he said at the end? Verse 12, or verse 13, excuse me. Those Babylonians, man, Israel is so much more righteous than they are. Yeah, Israel has its problems, and Israel's done wrong, but man, compared to the Babylonians, God, Israel is more righteous. How could you choose them to be the tool of judgment against Israel? That's the basis that he's asking. And isn't that sometimes where we get off track? Don't we sometimes, from our limited view and perspective and understanding, we question what God is doing based upon which one of his characteristics we want to emphasize the most at the moment. You know what I find interesting? Verse 12, he mentions some great characteristics of God, but did you notice that he doesn't say anything about God being merciful there? 
He doesn't talk about the long-suffering of God. He, he doesn't talk about the just nature of God. He doesn't reference the fact that God has the omniscience and, and omnipresence to have the bird's-eye view while he and all of mankind have a ground view. He doesn't mention in these verses that God has given Israel chance after chance after chance themselves. He doesn't mention that Israel, so much more than the Babylonians or Chaldeans, have been immersed in immense revelation in the truth of God like no other nation. He doesn't mention about Israel to whom much is given, much more is required. He doesn't mention these truths and principles, even the character of God in many of these things. He doesn't mention all those nations that Israel conquered. People they carried away captive themselves and even killed. You know, the reality is, don't we sometimes look at things and we want to question God, why he allowed something to happen? And we say, well, but God is so loving. Why would he let that happen? And we get fixated upon one characteristic of God and in one aspect of it. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes we want to question, why does God not bring down the hand of judgment on that person and on the wicked because they prosper? And we appeal to the just character, the just nation of God, of God his, his holy justice. We appeal in that moment to that characteristic. Essentially, our problem is this too often. We as believers, as humans, in our limited view and understanding, we want to dictate where and when and which one of God's characteristics should shine the most. Now, don't miss this. I really believe this is the crux of the matter. You see, you and I, in a, any given situation, we became, can become so fixated on that one characteristic. God, we want your, your grace, your mercy, your love, your long-suffering to be shown in this situation. And then we'll come over to this situation. God, you need to unleash the power of your punishment and your justice and, and just waylay these In different situations, we get fixated upon one characteristic of God. Honestly, we want to dictate what it ought to be done. And yet we are reminded of a simple reality that Habakkuk is reminded of here in this book. We are not God. He is God. He is sovereign. His way is best. And the just shall live by faith in that truth. But what about this situation? What about this? What about the? We are not God. His way is always best. Habakkuk is getting a great lesson on the settled faith of God. Because you know what? We might be able to take one person. We might be able to just uh, take a member of Fostoria Baptist Church. And I, I could stand them up here. And I could ask you to describe different characteristics about that. Oh, yeah, they're strong. Oh, yeah, uh, they're kind. Oh, yes, they're this and this. You know, and reality is, many of us here, others would list many different characteristics or descriptions of us. But you know what? Let me ask you this way. Are any of us perfect in our display, demonstration, and employment of our characteristics? Well, no. We're not perfect. Sometimes we are kind, but sometimes we're not kind at the right moments. 
Other times, we may be strong, but we may not be strong at the right moments. We falter in the application, the display, the demonstration, the employment of who we are, our characteristics, and so forth. Now, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and all these things listed on. But my friends, sometimes where do we struggle with the employment of those things appropriately? Now, you know what we know about our God? He displays his full character at the perfect time. When it's necessary and best for him to be merciful, may I assure you, our God is merciful. When it is the perfect time for our God to express and demonstrate his just holiness, our God does so. Our God is perfect. In the expression, and the demonstration, the which characteristic we might describe it as such, shines the best. You see, for Habakkuk here, the answer of God has not brought peace or relief, but rather it has deepened his perplexity. Look at verses 14 and 15. He goes on. <laughs> and makest men as the fishes of the sea. Now he's talking about the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice in our glad. Okay? Here's another view that, that adds to his perplexity, his uh, confusion over God's answer. Number two is this. The foretold judgment is incompatible with true compassion for the victims. So he looks at it and says, wait a minute. When I think of the, the, what you just described, there's no compassion to God. He adopts this theme in this verse, in these verses, in the verses that follow. He adopts a theme with a fishing kind of example, a fishing theme with fish in the sea and so forth. In these two verses initially here, he, he compares the victims that will uh, be spread out before the Chaldeans uh, here as fish in the sea. And really, that matter litter, little excuse me, to the fishermen. Uh, fishermen taking in a great haul of fish cares very little about each individual fish. They simply catch them and slaughter them and, and sell them, whatever the case may be. They, there's just no care about them. There's no, there's no concern. There's no compassion whatsoever. He also, uh, he kind of inserts just a little illustration. He says, like creeping things. Okay? Let me ask you. If you see a spider crawling on you or somewhere near you, what do you do other than scream and run away? You probably grab something, right? Or maybe there's an ant that comes all, shows up on your counter. You're just like this, okay? Now, let me ask you this. Do you go around the rest of the day? Oh, that poor ant. Poor little guy. I probably shouldn't have done that. He probably had family, a wife, and children. Had a home. Somebody else will take now. It's so bad. No, we don't care. Without a care or a thought, we'll smash a spider or kill an ant. A little creeping thing like it's nothing. And that's literally what Habakkuk says. God, these Chaldeans, they don't care. They'll kill women and children and, and men. They'll murder them. They don't care. There's no compassion. Is that really the tool that you want to use? He's questioning God. My, how often we think in our limited understanding that we know a better way than God. Faith doesn't say that. Faith says, God, your way is best. I trust you. I'll, I'll look upward when even my vision is clouded. 
he goes on and he, he literally might question God. God, you're going to use these uncompassionate and cruel people? God, you said they were bitter. You said they're terrible. And you're going to use them? Oh, theirs would be a terrible and crushing net that dragged across the nations, catching men, women, and children, slaughtering them. Did you see what he's having? He described it. He says, God, they're going to rejoice over this. They're going to be happy and find joy in the fact that they're doing this. There's no compassion. Why would such a nation be allowed to do so? You see, for Habakkuk, it was incompatible with any care and compassion that he felt mankind and humans were deserving of or that he knew that God uh, truly has for all people everywhere. Habakkuk knows that our, our God is a loving God. He cares about mankind and lives. And so certainly he loves the sanctity of life. So Habakkuk mind, he says, wait a minute, this is incompatible. It doesn't stop there. He adds to it, verses 16 and 17. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Uh, number three, the foretold judgment is incompatible with the undeserving conquerors. It's incompatible with what he knows of uh, these Chaldeans and how not only their lack of compassion for the victims, but also how they're going to respond to their victory, to the things that they gain. What does Habakkuk know? Well, he knows what you and I know. There's no God but Jehovah, the God of heaven. He also knows what the Babylonians do, what they accomplish. The lands that they conquer, they could not do. It is only possible because God in heaven allows it. And sometimes you and I are perplexed because we say, hey, why did that person become president? Why is that person in that position? Why does that happen in our nation? And we're perplexed. We say, well, God, I, wait a minute. We know that that can't happen unless you allow it in your sovereignty. And we begin to question that. These cruel Chaldeans, he understands. But God, they won't praise you. God, they're going to praise their worthless gods, gods of their own making. And he goes, it's no different than like the fisherman praising his net, praising his hook, his bait, giving the glory to those things for the great abundance that he got. Habakkuk understood this. Every good gift comes from the Father of heaven. So he understood that. He said, man, the fisherman ought to give praise to God. And yet he's going to be like a fisherman that he catches a whole bunch of fish. Well, thank you, net. Thank you, hook. Thank you, bait. Not giving God the credit and the praise that he is worthy of. These Chaldeans, they're not going to praise you, God. You're going to let them run over everything? They're not going to give you the glory. How many times have we thought about a politician or somebody else? God, if they get into office, it's going to be terrible for your word and the things that you value. And, and yeah, it is. My gosh, why would, why would that happen? Why, God, would you allow that, permit that? Much like Habakkuk here. Though God allowed it, they would not give him glory. Rather, he says what? Praise and sacrifice would be offered to the false gods of Babylon. They would credit those gods for making them fat, having meat that's plenteous. Their, their spoils of the nation would be plenteous. Verse 17. Did you catch what Habakkuk did in verse 17? He, he basically says this. Is this just going to keep on? 
Once they start, well, there'll be no stop. They'll empty their nets. They'll gather more, and it will just continue. Well, there'll be no end to it. The reality of the answer is essentially no. Historically, we know the Chaldeans and Babylonians swept across the land. They were in power for many, many years. It was going to be a dark and dire day for Israel and the other nations that fell before the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk is wrestling with the thought of the wicked Chaldean success as the tool of God. God, why are you using them? God, I could think of a hundred different other nations that would be better to be used. And yet God says, this is my answer. So then it puts us in the place of Habakkuk. How do we respond? In your situation, in your challenge, in your life, the things that you face and we are tempted and, and sometimes wrestle with, we question, how do we respond? I like how one commentator or author wrote it, a good explanation. He says this, there's nothing wrong with wrestling with the problems of life and seeking a better understanding of God's will. But we must beware lest we start debating with God and trying to change God's mind. Well stated. Well stated. Because we have to often remind ourselves we are not God. His ways are best. And though I may not understand it, and though I may not be able to wrap my mind around it, I have no clue exactly what he's doing, how he's going to wear it, what, I'm going to trust in my God. Nor will I debate with him. Nor will I try to get him to change his mind. I think when the theme of this, certainly the whole book, is him embracing God like his name means, but also embracing the reality of what that means is the just shall live by faith. Can we put it this way? The just must live by a faith that is what? Well, true faith in God is fully yielded. It's fully surrendered to God. And if you're fully surrendered to God, then you're surrendered to his will for your life. Every aspect Every answer to prayer, every disappointment, every happy moment, every heartbreak, every sorrow, God, I'm surrendered. God, you allow consequences to choices I make. You allow consequences to sin. Certainly that's true, and not everything we can say is the perfect will of God in the sense of what he wanted. Sometimes we, we reap the consequences of choices we make, but God even allows those consequences to grow us and to teach us and to learn, help us to learn. So I'm surrendered to it. No matter the doubts that are spurred on by our view. So what I'm seeing in Habakkuk is like, man, God, this, these people don't, why would you choose them to judge Israel, right? Israel even with all their problems? is more righteous than them, God. That view spur, spurs on doubts at times. And in his heart, don't miss it, Habakkuk really believes that. I think Habakkuk is here. He's just wrestling. He's having a moment of wrestling with these thoughts in his heart and mind. Because you know what happens? This is quite amazing to me. You say, how do you know that's in his heart? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Notice what he says here. He says this, I will stand upon my watch he will, and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he, speaking of God, will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am, what's the next word? I mean, it's funny, he goes, okay, God, I'm, and I love the heart attitude, don't miss it, because what? He's still crying out to God. 
He's still looking to God for answers. He's going, I don't understand this, God. I don't know why this happened. And man, I love his heart attitude because he keeps coming back to God. I've told you before in this same series, God forbid, God rue the day that you and I stop turning to God for answers. When we don't understand, when something's not working out the way we want it, when we don't get the answers to prayer, and we just, just, heaven is cut off because we stop calling out to God. That's not his heart attitude here. He's still looking to God for an answer, and he says this, I'll be a watchman eagerly and carefully watching heaven for a response. You can picture it in his mind. He says, I'll be on that tower looking, God, waiting like a watchman, looking for the enemy at the first sign, the first glimpse of a response. God, I'm going to be looking to see how you show me, and I'm waiting for what you have to say to me. And I love the statement. He even anticipates, God, you're probably going to reprove me. You're probably going to reprove me for what I say. Boy, I would describe this as this. It's a spirit of alertness. That watchman mentality. It's a spirit of waiting on God. God, I'm waiting for you, what you have to say to me. And there's also an anticipation that God would have the best answer. He's anticipating. God, okay, I have all these questions. I don't understand how it's going to work, but I sure am glad that of every book that you write, we would call every life a book in every page of human history. That at the end of every book you author, God, it's the perfect conclusion. It's the best answer. It's the perfect ending. And though along the journey, we don't understand. We can't comprehend all that God's doing. We don't see him working behind the scenes. We don't see how he's going to tie all the loose ends together. We don't understand why he didn't do it this way, why he didn't do it this way. God, there seems to be so much better things. May you and I, in the midst of our perplexity, share this same attitude. May we purpose to live by yielded and surrendered faith. And boy, I am so thankful that the day will come when you and I will understand all that God did. Or at least to some degree. We'll be able to look back and understand, yeah, God, your way is best. I see what you were doing. I understand how that was working out. My job right now, though, is that the just shall live by faith. I trust you and I will this week.